All righty. Well, I am glad you guys have joined us this morning as we are diving once again into the letter, Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is John Mark. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Christ Church, and we are so glad you guys are here with us this morning. Um, you know, we gather each week, every Sunday morning and throughout the week in homes, through small groups. Uh, we'll gather at, at coffee shops and parks. I know a bunch of people got together yesterday and played uh, a very hot and sweaty day of uh, spike ball. So we are always gathering together because that's what his church, the body of Christ, does. We, we gather together and we share our lives with each other. Uh, we do this to, to love one another, to share in the joys and the sorrows of life because the Bible calls us to do just that, to love one another. I'm going to throw you all off here because I know we're in First Peter or First uh, Timothy, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about First uh, John for a second. First uh, John chapter four, starting in verse seven, reminds us this: Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this. The love of God was made manifest for us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And he goes on and says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What a statement, right? What a statement. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. I'm not sure where that hits you this morning. Maybe you have had a rough week, and love is the last thing you want to think about. You barely want to be next to the person in the car with you, let alone love random strangers. You know, you've had a rough week. So maybe that, that hits you tough this morning and rough this morning. But the reason why I bring this and the reason why I take you to 1 John to get to 1 Timothy is this is exactly at the heart of what we're going to discuss this morning. We're going to discuss this morning uh, concerning the office and the role of a deacon within the body that is founded upon this universal Christ or universal call for us who are in Christ. The role of the deacon is founded upon this and for, for every Christian but it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And like I said, now, obviously, we are we're going to be diving into 1 Timothy uh, and not 1 John, but these verses are a calling for every Christian and is what is central to every Christian and is what's central to what we're going to discuss in Paul's letter to Timothy. And so let's dive into Timothy, right? Uh, just to, for a quick recap, if you just now joined us, there's been a few weeks, Paul is writing to Timothy about setting the church in Ephesus in order. He began by this letter by addressing the issues raised with these false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And then he moves on to a discussion that we've covered in the last few weeks, discussing the roles and functions of those present in the church. So you see some issues raised by these uh, false teachers were the roles of women 
and the nature of what the leadership of the church body looks like. Uh, and that's what Matt covered last week, right? We, we saw what, what an elder is and what the nature, function, and role of the elder was. And now we're arriving to, to the function, the role, and the reason for the deacon. And so with that, with all of that frame of reference, let's dive into 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, it says this. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. But they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons as they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. And I would ask that as we open it, that you would speak to us through it, that we would learn more about you and more about ourselves and our need for you. Father, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, now if you're a note taker uh, or, or maybe just like a fan of alliteration, I'm about to go like old school Baptist on you. I've got three points and they all start with R, so it's excited. <laughs> it's exciting, right? If, you're, if you grew up in a Baptist church, you're like, this is, this is good. This is what came in the back, like that extra slip in the back of the bulletin. If you guys remember bulletins, you guys remember those? Okay, some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. That was a thing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're going to talk about that in the three R's. So this is, if you're taking notes, this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what is the, the role of the deacon in the church, and then we're going to look at the requirements of a deacon. And we're going to end with find, finally the, the considering what is the reward of this deacon. And so look, let's look at these. First off, you have the role of a deacon. <clears throat> First, we can, <clears throat> excuse me, the role of the deacon. Uh, and we, just for a bit of clarity, we can look at like what the original Greek is and gain a bit of clarity. The word we translate as deacon appears often in the New Testament. The word literally translated is servant or one who serves. And that's exactly what, spoiler alert, exactly what a deacon does. A deacon is someone who serves. And so often this word in ancient Greek was, was specifically focused on, on the serving of tables, right? The ones who we would call a waiter. Um, and the, the title was not specifically just for that. It had a larger function. When you look at it as far as how it was used in that time period, it was for one who serves tables, but it was also uh, for those who bared the title of server or one who serves it was more than just food delivered to a person's table. This was also given to the one who would, say, organize a, a wedding feast or meal or celebration. For the one who was responsible for those, those back-of-house roles, right? The what, the where, and the when, and the how, and all of those things. The, the logistics, the preparation, the, the food delivery, all of these things kind of wrapped up in this idea of server. 
And so you have this, this idea of the one who serves being all-encompassing of what it takes to get this thing done in this celebration, this festival, this meal completed. Now, here's the thing. The server, the idea of one who serves the deacon in that original word was not a glamorous word, right? This was not something that, that the ancient Greeks held in high regard. Really, the only service, when people attach that word, servant, to a, an occupation, the only one that gained any sort of honor or fame or reward uh, in, in their eyes was one who held the position of a political servant. For the majority of Greeks, the idea of, of being one who serves is a lowly position. One commentator said that it was the goal of every good Greek person to reach the position and place in your life that you could be served rather than be the one serving. And we can understand that, right? It's never, it's never like an honor to serve. In most of our context, we say it's not really the honor to serve. And put it in context before you get like high and mighty, okay? So imagine these two conversations happening. Hey, listen, I got a party next week. Love for you to come. Or, hey, I got a party next week. I really need another waiter. It's a little different, right? <laughs> like that, that hits you a little bit different in the heart, right? So we, we can understand that there, there is a difference here um, of, what, of what they were uh, seeing. One was like an invitation to the other party. The other feels like you've been forced into a night job, right? But this is the office that Paul is outlining. He is telling these people who do not hold in high regard this idea of service that there are to be ones appointed to serve, and so that's what he's outlining here for, for these Ephesian believers, for Timothy, and, and for us. It is for a group of people to be set apart in the church to serve the church. And it's as those who serve tables and in the feasts and in the festivals. And understand, just as we pointed out with the, the roles of men and women and, and the, the elders, this was not Paul just simply speaking out of thin air and developing some, some sort of on-the-fly ecclesial setting. This had foundation in Scripture already. And so Paul is simply clarifying for, for Timothy as he sets in order the church in Ephesus what these uh, deacons are to look like. And so Paul is appointing deacons, but this is not the first time we see this. If you flip over to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, you're going to see the origin, the creation, the establishment of these, these first uh, deacons, these prototype deacons. And it says this in, in Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, 
and uh, Prochorus and Nica Nicanor. I really should have like prepped these, right? This was on me. I apologize. <laughs> and Timor and uh, Paraminus and Nicholas and the pros who was a proselyte of Antioch. I got through it. We're okay. <laughs> these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests came to obedience to the faith. So there's so much to explain here, right? So much to dive into. What we see in chapter 6 is, like I said, what you might call the, the origin, the establishment, creation of the first deacons that would serve in the church. And it's a pretty simple thing, right? A pretty simple need arose uh, in the church at that time. You see, the church was growing and growing fast. No longer was it just contained to the, the Hebrew-speaking Jews in Jerusalem, but it had begun to gain follow, followers and um, believers among the Hellenists. Now, the Hellenists were, were Greek-speaking Jews who had long since, these guys who had long since left the ancestral home of, of uh, Israel and had, whether through, through force or through seeking fortune elsewhere, had moved from those Hebrew-speaking lands and had picked up the language and the customs of much of the, the Greek world. And so you had, you had it expanding from a, a Hebrew-focused following and gathering to multicultural, diverse, and expanding amongst the other people. And so as it was expanding and the church was growing, they began to bring in these more Greek-speaking people. And so what we have now is this church is one part Jewish and one part Hellenist believers. And what we see is a complaint has arisen, right? Uh, an argument has arisen among these newcomers, these Hellenists, because they feel that their widows, those who cannot care for themselves, are being overlooked in the daily distribution. So this is the daily giving out of food and of provisions to the people. They feel that their, their widows, the, those who belong to them, are being overlooked. And so this complaint had risen up. <clears throat> and the apostles gathered together and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint seven men to carry out the work of meeting the physical needs of the church in that moment, to organize and correctly distribute the food. And they, they said this so they might continue in on the calling that they have so that the gospel can continue to be proclaimed, right? And so you already see a distinction between those who are called to, to serve and then the work of, of, of the, the elders and, and this time the uh, apostles. So you have, you have a distinction there. But that's what we see here is the origin of this role is a role of service. To meet specifically uh, for these seven, to meet the needs of the hungry and the poor and the vulnerable. Vulnerable. Now this might seem like a relatively small issue, right? You're looking, okay, they gathered some people are being overlooked. This looks like a, a relatively small issue when compared to others, right? You have later on uh, Christians being thrown in jail and, and, and crucified and all these things happening that they're attacking the Christian, but, uh, or these Christian believers, but um, this seems relatively small in comparison to them. But what really this could have happened, this could have potentially led to disastrous consequences. And what I mean by that is first, it is a serious sin to neglect the weak and the vulnerable. Paul will, even later in this letter, in, in chapter 5, 
command Timothy and the church to honor widows who are truly widows, right? And so you see even there he is, he's making a distinction. And then James later will tell us that a pure and undefiled religion includes the visiting and providing for orphans and widows in their distress. And so you see that in James chapter 1. You see, God cares for the poor and the brokenhearted, for the weak and the vulnerable. And as such, he has called us to care for them as the church. And so secondly, what you see as a disastrous consequence is it would have affected the unity of the church in such a way that it actually could have led to the first church split, as it were. And please understand that these seven men in Acts chapter 6 were, were called out to serve. And this service was not some way of, of placating widows, right? This wasn't the, the apostles saying, okay, well, just make somebody else do it. You know, get them to take care of it. It wasn't merely placating people's complaints to get them off the apostles' back. This was uh, not some, some way to solve a, like a culinary conundrum, right? This was not just an unimportant matter so the apostles didn't want to deal with it, right? But these seven men were called to serve the church in its need so that they could address a much larger issue. You see, the unanswered complaints of these Greek-speaking widows would have caused others around them to, to gather around them and to basically choose sides. Had this gone unaddressed, it would have been like Team Hebrew widows and Team Greek widows. And suddenly you have groups of people branching off because they feel their needs are not being addressed and not being met. You see, in, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles were faced with a threat that could fracture the very unity that Christ died to achieve. We see that in, in John 17, right? That's what Jesus said in verse 21. It says that Jesus was, was headed towards the cross and that in his prayer he prayed that those who would believe in him would all be one just as he and the Father are one. You see, Christ died so that we might be in him and might know the Father and that we would be one. And that unity was what was at stake in Acts chapter 6. So the gospel message is that, that our unity as brothers and sisters to Christ supersedes any worldly difference. So don't, don't be fooled here as we, we look at this context of what these, these apostles were doing. They did not delegate the problem to others because it wasn't important, but precisely because it was so important. And so you see this, this role of deacon coming up is to serve and to meet the needs of God's people so that we might be one, so that we might be in unity. And there's benefit, right, to the unity in the church. Look at the end of the story in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, what happens is the word of God increases and the church grew. The church, churches that are full of disunity do not grow. They shrink. 
If there were time, we, I'm sure we could like raise hands and recount stories of broken churches we've seen in our past that have not been uh, joined in unity but held up by some small detail. But you see, what, what, what Paul is getting at here is a unified church is a church that can live out the gospel call to love one another. And we might do well just to think on that, right? To think on the unity of believers. So we are called, and, and this group is set up to serve and to, to serve the church in love so that we would be of one mind and one heart. I would say if you are struggling with unity, of harboring ill will against a brother or a sister, what might it look like if you serve? Maybe not in the role of a deacon, but just serve that person, right? That's what Matthew reminds us, right? Uh, where your heart is, there your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So you, know, you pour your time, you invest in that person and serve that person. I think it will flip how you feel. Because it's not really the, the point of where I was going, but I feel the need to just remind us of that. And so we see this role of deacon, right? One who is created and appointed to serve for the good of the church, for the good of the body, for the unity of those, so that we might not fall into sin and disunity, but we might be focused on achieving the goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we see in that is a distinction, right? The role of deacon is different from that of the elder, Though what we see as we read through this is the, the requirements, the way it's structured, the requirements. He listed out elders and then deacons. You see a lot of similarity in their structure. But what you don't see is deacons aren't called uh, for the, the element of teaching, though you do see elements of teaching from, from uh, Stephen in Acts. The, the deacons are not called to lead or to oversee the church or to teach, but the role is instead that deacons humbly serve the congregation by ensuring practical matters are met while the specifics of, of food-related ministry, as you have an exact, uh, as the example in Acts 6, uh, could be other things. You know, the, it, you have the practical matters of being met, whether that's the food-related ministries or other such ministries like benevolence or mercy or serving others in some other way. And so you have this, this role of the deacon as one who serves. So now let's, let's briefly consider the, the requirements of a deacon. And so back to 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so let them be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So as I said before, there's a universal call to serve if we are a Christian, if we are in Christ. But that does not mean that there is, uh, there's been a universal call. That does not mean there's been a universal call for us to all be deacons because not everyone can serve as a deacon. The office of deacon, like the office of elder, is reserved for those who meet certain character qualifications who have been called to that office. And so what we see here is a list of the qualifications of a deacon uh, 
And previously, we saw last week the, the qualifications for an elder, and they're markedly similar with a few noticeable exceptions. We can see that, <clears throat> for the, the sake of time, we can see that you can sum this up really in one word, which is godliness. Those seeking to be a deacon should model godliness. And so those verses, those four verses we read, um, to put it another way, you could sum it up with that last word, which is blameless. You see, a dishonest or a disruptive person cannot fill this role. To clarify so you you don't misunderstand me, um, obviously we cannot be sinless. Blameless does not mean sinless. Godly does not mean sinless. But the character traits of personal holiness and Christian maturity are certainly possible and what Paul is saying required to do the work of the deacon. And that's because God cares more about our our character than our skills and abilities in individual tasks. You see, it doesn't say deacons must be, you know... uh, credit score of 800, you know, must be always home by 6.30 p.m., you know, all these things. There's no requirements of, of daily activity, but he instead lists character requirements. Brothers and sisters, the character requirements are important because they protect the reputation of the local church, and by extension, they protect the reputation of Christ in the world. And by that, I mean this, that deacons are typically more visible as members who serve uh, because they're often dealing with things that, that are, are, are visible, right? You have, whether it's through benevolence and the giving and providing of money or of, of serving in, in uh, the distribution of food, right? That's what you saw in chapter 6. Right? They didn't want it to be, they wanted to be above reproach. And so these character requirements are for, for the reputation of the local church and Jesus Christ. They are representing the church in issues of, of benevolence, of helping, and outward acts of grace and mercy. And for this reason, it is essential that they are trustworthy, that they are not out for dishonest gain, that they are godly and blameless before everyone. And so the requirements are clear, right? And we're not going to spend a ton of time on those because we talked about them uh, in similarity from, from last week with, with the elders uh, when we were covering those. But, but it is essentially this, that they are to be godly and blameless before everyone so that they can do the work and the service they've been appointed to without reproach. And so now let's consider this deacon's reward, Right? That seems weird, right? You don't want to talk about reward. Seems like a weird thing, right? Uh, But the job of a servant is often a thankless task, but we see in verse 13 that for faithful deacons, there is uh, a promise of a gift. One, uh, a good standing for those who faithfully serve in that office, and two, the gift of boldness and confidence in faith. Paul is reminding the reader that the work of the deacon should be should not be despised, even though it may involve menial and seemingly trivial jobs, right? Like, like volunteering to, to mow the lawn of someone who is unable, 
an elderly uh, widow who is unable to mow the lawn, or whether that is doing laundry for a new single mother, or perhaps just doing the tasks around the house that go without reward and without thanks, at least visibly, for people who are too sick to get up and do other things around the house that need to be done. Or maybe it's just the background work of, of organizing the, and administering the, the uh, benevolence ministry of a church or things in, in that nature, right? These seemingly menial, without uh, any sort of outward recognition, recognition tasks. In the culture to which this was written, there was a sense of this kind of service, like I said, being beneath them. But Paul is reminding us here that these deacons are, uh, the ones who are serving well will be greatly esteemed in God's kingdom, not overlooked. That is Christ's reminder to the disciples, right? After um, the mother of James and John came to uh, him looking for some sort of position of honor, for the, the, the sons of thunder, you know, give them some sort of glory. He says to his disciples that whoever would be great among you must be a servant. And so he's, he's reminding them of that. Men who, who serve well, people who serve well, will also gain great confidence in faith. And so what that means is when a person, whether uh, a deacon or not, when they serve others in conscious love for Christ, Christ, his faith is strengthened, helping him uh, strongly and boldly proclaim the gospel to those he interacts with. So how does that work? If, if we serve, it's easier to share. Is that what this is saying? If we serve, is it easier to share? And, and here's what that means. It's often easier to proclaim the goodness and mercy of God to others when we have a front seat to its unfolding, right? Right? Uh, I remember listening to a man when we were in, we were serving at a church in uh, Hillsborough, Texas, and there was a, a man there, a deacon at this little Baptist church, which I was a youth pastor at, uh, named Ronnie Faulkner, and I would have lunch with him occasionally. And this man uh, had been a deacon in this area for a long time. He um, would tell me stories of all the things he had seen God do. You see, he owned a little uh, car repair shop. Nothing major, nothing big. It was well established for you know, a town of 6,000 people. But he had this little shop, and he was able to tell, for me, tell, tell me of countless stories of when people from the church came in, how the church was able to, uh, through his work and through his ministry and through his opportunities there, to meet the needs of those who were uh, unable to pay or unable to find means of their own, whether that was just for simple car repairs and then for, for outside interacting with guys that would come in that would just, just release from prison and had a car that hadn't run in a few years trying to get back on their feet and he was able to love them and, and serve them in such a way that he, not proclaiming his own generosity, but was proclaiming the goodness in God, of God in his ability to help others. And so what he means by, by this great confidence in the faith is, is these deacons are able to see God meeting needs through their faithfulness 
Not through their own abilities or their own uh, resources, but through God's resources and love, they gain, they gain great confidence in God's goodness and mercy being worked out in their acts of service. And so Ronnie, every time I met with him, he was able to proclaim the goodness and love of Jesus in the work that was being accomplished through him. And so we have this role being outlined, right, of the deacon. It's called as a set apart to serve and the requirements for godliness and faithfulness. And that the reward would be seeing God's handiwork and all that is accomplished for the unity and good of the body. So how do we take this home, right? How do we make this apply to us? You see, we're a smaller church, right? We haven't officially appointed many deacons. There's a time coming that as we continue to grow, we will add more and more to fulfill the needs and be the the hands and the feet of the body of Jesus Christ. And so as we reflect upon the role and the nature of what a deacon is, perhaps, brothers and sisters, this is a call to action to prepare your hearts for the opportunities that are coming to serve this body of believers that you call church. Perhaps it is preparing your heart and say, okay, are there opportunities for me to serve? To, to use my ability, my time, my resources for Jesus. And so maybe there's a moment of reflection that needs to happen there. Or maybe it's, it's a call just to find a way to serve regardless of your title. Right? We are too entitled and waiting for a title to do the work of ministry and to serve and to love others. And so maybe this is just a call, okay, the, the nature of just being a, a son or a daughter of Jesus is to serve others in love. And it's because while deacons are called to serve the church in specific offices, the acts of, of, of service are not limited to them, right? It's not you're either, you're either playing on the team or you're on the bench, we are called to serve and to use all of our gifts for God's glory. That's what First Peter reminds us, uh, that each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. So if you are in Christ, there is not a sign line from which you can view the action on the field. You, brother and sister, are called to serve. And so Paul begins his letter to Timothy with a reminder that the aim of his charge was love. And that's why I I said it and framed it in the idea that we are called to uh, love one another and to be known by our love, as as, uh, John reminds us. And so we, we are setting it in that because service is in chief an act of love. It puts others before ourselves. And so, brothers and sisters, we are called to love and to serve the body, regardless if you hold the title of servant or deacon or not. Perhaps, too, we could also just take uh, away much of the same that uh, what we said at the end of last week, what Matt said at the end of last week's uh, sermon, which there, there, uh, only, only some will fill the office of deacon, but the call to holiness, to godliness, is a call for all Christians. The fact is that most of us will spend more time cleaning our ears this week than we will in the Word of God. 
And so maybe this is just a reflection on what it means to be a servant is really just a reflection on what does faithfulness in my life look like? The call of holiness and godliness is a call to all Christians. Perhaps as we reflect upon the requirements of a deacon, we can apply those to our own life, how we can live dignified, trustworthy lives before the people of God. And finally, we can look at these, these texts like this and look at laying out what it means to serve and to be called to be a servant, and it should draw us to prayer. Prayer that we would grow as believers in Jesus, that we would grow in unity and in fellowship, that we would raise up more and more deacons as the church grows who are ready to do the work of ministry, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, that we would raise up men and women ready to serve out of love for the body for the sake of the unity found in the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. So that's my challenge to you guys this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray for our church that as we grow, that we would identify and raise up and make ready more and more men and women ready to serve and to be a servant for the sake of your kingdom and of your gospel being proclaimed. Father, I pray that we would not um, wait for ones with titles to serve, but that we would seek to serve each other, to use our gifts that you have given us for the good of the body. Father, where there is disunity in our hearts, I pray that you would expose that, that you would draw us to yourself and, th- and to each other through the love of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.